Welcome to Impasto, a podcast about two art school ladies discussing the fun bits of art history. I'm Michelle. And I'm Paige. And we are not professional art historians, and this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Suggestions and comments are welcomed via email at impasto.pod at gmail.com. So I guess we're just gonna we're just gonna hop into it this week. Last week was a special episode where um I just talked about Caravaggio the entire time and his bad boy tendencies. We love him. Uh, but we're back to our regular scheduled programming. Um, so this week, I, Paige, am going to be discussing Anne W. Brigman. Michelle, who are you going to be talking about? I will be discussing Madame de Pompadour. Oh, I already like, I'm excited about that. She sounds, she sounds cool. So she I'm excited. <laughs> so I guess I get to kick it off since our last regular episode, I went second. So here we are. Take it away. I'm ready to listen. All right. So this week I'll be talking about Anne W. Brigman. So she was born December 3rd of 1869, and she died in February of 1950. So she had a very long, prosperous life. I think she was like 90-something when she did die. She is a female photographer who utilized the Sierra Nevada landscape and the female body to tell and connect a lot of like pagan folklore and stories that were somewhat popular at the time. She was born in Honolulu, Hawaii uh, in 1869. Her father was English, and I think they just happened to live there until she was about 16 when she moved into Los Gatos, California. I I pray that means cats. The cats, California. I would love to live in the cats, California. In 1894, she married a sea captain, Martin Brigman. She accompanied her husband on several voyages in the South Seas and returned to Hawaii at least once in that time frame. And she is quoted as saying that she picked up photography seeking her own artistic outlet. Uh, She picked up photography between 1900 and 1901 at the age of 32. That's not that strange for this time period. As we've discussed with people I've covered so far. Around this time, photography wasn't about picking up a camera and going. It was about the negatives and it was about the processes that it took to take the photo from whatever your idea was all the way through the process. It was not easy. (laughs) She is trained technically as a painter. So that's why her images give us the sort of feel that they do. So she was exhibited within two years of her beginning her pathway on photography. She developed a reputation as a master almost immediately in the, in the style that they called pictorial photography. And the first public display of her work came in January with the other members of the California Camera Club at San Francisco's second photographic salon in the Mark Hopkins Institute of Art. And her portrait of Mr. Marrow was singled out in the press and was reproduced in the popular monthly Camera Craft. And it was a journal that she continued to be featured in from that time. In late 1902, she came across Camera Work, which was Mm -hmm. the journal that was produced by Alfred Stieglitz, like the pictorialist, like the guy of the movement, like the... I don't want to say the granddaddy of it all, but I mean, he was just like the head figure for the pictorialist movement in the States because he was working out of New York. And she actually like fangirled messaged, not messaged, obviously. She sent a letter 
telling him about how much she loved the journal. Somehow he caught wind of what her work was like and he suddenly was enthralled with her type and he has actually several of her prints in his personal collection. This is kind of how I uh, found her. I believe the Met produced a book called The Complete Collections of Alfred Stieglitz. And I was like thumbing through that one day just looking for cool pictures to talk about. And I came across her work and I was just mind blown. I was like, oh my God, it's so beautiful. It's ethereal and it's just otherworldly. And I think that she is overlooked in a massive amount of ways that I cannot wait to discuss later. So in 1903, she was listed as an associate of his famous photo session, which was, we kind of talked about it, the spinoff of the, uh, they're like the spinoff of the British group of the Brotherhood of Photography (laughs) or whatever that we talked about with uh, Heinrich Kuhn. Like, this is like the American version of it. And he... Then two years later after that, listed her as official member. So in 1905, she became an official member of the society. But between that time, between 1903 and 1908, Stieglitz exhibited her photos many times in his gallery, as well as featured it in camera work. But the admiration of her work was it like spread like wildfire because almost everybody like wanted to show her work they wanted to include her in the journals they wanted to just have these huge exhibitions of her stuff and she actually was having in 1904 only three year three to four years after picking up the camera for the first time she was getting single person exhibitions like it was just her work it wasn't like a collection of works which is how it usually went like you submitted one or two prints but it's just her so in 1905 her photo titled the vigil was showed at the london salon and she was elected membership into the linked ring which was the name that i could remember earlier (laughs) the brotherhood of photography (laughs) the linked ring that's what it's called so she gets offered a position in that as well oh my god brotherhood of photography i feel like that was a great name i would not have uh second guessed it if i didn't write what it properly was a little bit later oh well and so she was being shown with these high rollers of photography at the time because like we mentioned, this was a science. This was more seen as a science than an art. And so the fact that she's a woman and doing mm-hmm. it and is like this popular already. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, middle finger all the way. In 1908, she had a big year. She had a, a huge year for herself, which is probably what plays into what happens to her two years later. In 1908, the Secession Club held a special exhibit again for just her photographs in New York. It's a big deal. This is a like boys club of photography, like the boys club, the pictorialists. She's getting her own shows. In 1908, she became a fellow of the photo secession, which is a big deal. She was one of the first female photographers and she was the only one west of the Mississippi. And so her distance apart from everyone had nothing to do with It didn't diminish her success at all. So her photo entitled The Kodak, A Decorative Study, was a prize winner. 
and it was on the cover of a Kodak catalog. It was called The Moon Cave, uh, I believe was the photograph that was featured, and many other photos. And then there was another really large Worcester Art Museum fourth annual ex exhibition of photographs. She was featured in that as well. In 1909, she won a gold medal in the Alaska Yukon Exposition, as well as awards in Europe. And she continued to exhibit for many years and was included in the landmark international exhibition at the Albright Knox Art Gallery in 1911. So she was super popular, getting all these shows. She wasn't just a photographer. She was a writer. She was a poet. She was an actress as well. And she also judged baby beauty contests, which I thought was just a great little thing <laughs> to just like stick in there. This is potentially my favorite part of it. I don't know. I guess at this point, it's 10 years after. So she's about 45. It's 1910. Her husband retires and expects her to drop what she's doing. And take care of him. You know what? <laughs> you know what she does? She divorced his ass. She left him. <laughs> they separated in 1910. And then she moved into a cabin on 32nd Street with her dog, Rory, a dozen tamed birds, and occasionally her mother. <laughs> huh. You know what? Good for her. Good for her. <laughs> Good for you. Like, I Although, just, why did she have so many birds? I don't know. No. It's just okay. really weird. Like, she's living her best life. She's 45. She's 45 and it's just like, you think I'm going to take care of you? Just because I'm a, fam a fam famous photographer? <laughs> she's like, no, because I'm a famous photographer, I ain't doing shit. <laughs> yeah, I ain't doing shit for you. I ain't cooking you dinner. So... <laughs> she was active in the growing bohemian community of the San Francisco Bay Area and became close friends with the Oakland writer Jack London and the Berkeley poet and naturalist Charles Keeler. She's just <laughs> befriending everybody. Everybody loves her. She loves everybody else. And it's great. She's a bohemian lady. So she's known for traipsing around in pants in the 1900s. Oh, at least. Oh, was she gay? Because most women during this time, if you were wearing, you pants. Know, wearing pants, like you were most likely, you know, of a certain sexuality, certain sexual orientation. No um, idea. Or, and even you had to have like special permission to wear pants. Like you had to have like a written notice. You had to have a certain job. She didn't so, care. Well, she so was a she... mountaineer. Oh, like that's so, like okay. listed this like listed in her like when you first look at her first line in a lot of like the biographies on most museums it's photographer pictorialist mountaineer <laughs> it's like okay girl get it so okay, maybe so they made the exception that she was wearing pants because she's a mountaineer so i have a really great great quote from her about her pictures my pictures tell of my freedom of soul, of my emancipation from fear. I slowly found my power in the camera among the junipers and the tamarack pines of the high storm-swept altitudes. 
I was like, yes. I don't know what that means, but I love it. <laughs> so she continued to work in the Bay Area of California up until, I believe, her death. And she continued to work in photography well into the 1940s. And many believed that she was actually losing her vision. And so she went from photography into poetry and creative writing. She did do a lot of um, kind of abstract photography. During this time, almost everything's black and white. Almost everything is super smudged. It's very abstract um, to Mm -hmm. look at her later works in her life. And she wrote um, a book of poems called The Songs of a Pagan. And she published that book in 41. But because of World War II, the book was not printed until 49. And she died in 1950. So she got to see it published, though. Yeah, at least. At least she got to see her it published. Her last year of life. She- so about yeah. her about her style. So it, she's very obviously very in touch with nature. She's strongly influenced by European symbolism, but also drew on pagan mythology and romanticism. After shooting the photographs, she would extensively touch up the negatives with paint, pencil, and super imposition which is the layering of two negatives closely resembled charcoal drawings and impressionistic imagery the bergman's photographs are frequently focused on the female nude dramatically situated in natural landscapes and in trees i don't know where she finds these trees (sighs) to look at but oh my god the first one i want you to look at it is called the heart of the storm this was in 1901 one heart of the storm in 1901 among the first photographs that she took there's like these two figures like i can't tell if it's two women these are two women what are you talking about (laughs) (laughs) or is a woman and a man she is gay i'm i'm calling it she (laughs) was a homosexual it's okay living her best living her best life like this these are two women there's no denying what is happening right now this is these are two women and they are getting it on a tree trunk good for you i'm betting it's her (laughs) and a woman (laughs) and this is her muse and this is her putting her muse in her artwork i bet that's you know i just i want to believe it because my little heart i look at this and i'm just like yes queen Right, like yes. this is hot. Like this is this would be a great scene. Like this should be. What's that Netflix? The Sex Life, but like lesbian version. <laughs> I mean, I'm a, I'm about it. I mean, it looks great. <laughs> like it's just, it's just it looks awesome. so sexual too. Like, like there's no denying. Like the hands, yeah. like the body language is very yeah. something. <laughs> very sexual this mm. looks very like and i love i love the contrast like the halo that's forming around them mm-hmm. made by the trees oh my gosh this but is great it's just so beautiful and then think that this was made in 1901 like, like that too like knowing that this is among the first sets of really good images that were coming out of this time it's like i don't even know what camera she was using or like what kind of format she was printing on i don't even care (laughs) i'm like i just (laughs) love to look at it (laughs) so she also more recently her photographs have been seen as a statement of feministic principles expressing a yearning for some sort of unattainable freedom so there's always a woman 
and she's either in the tree trying to escape the tree or she's like on the edge of a cliff highlighted in this like beautiful light is kind of like blown out like it is this this moment of escaping like this moment of freedom this oneness with nature and the landscape because when I first saw the storm tree which is the second one I sent you which is a 1911 image Uh, it's a woman sitting on this really gnarly looking tree against this background I didn't even notice the woman at first Mm -hmm. and then when I looked at the picture a little bit longer I was like oh my god there's a lady on that tree (laughs) Because she's mimicking the shape of the branches. So a lot of people believe that she used exclusively cedar trees, which I believe is very popular in the area that she's photographing, Mm -hmm. um, in reference to Apollo and Daphne, who was saved by being transformed into a tree. So because of male oppression, she's turned into a tree Hmm. to escape him. And now she's coming out of the tree. She's like, mm. I'm shedding my man <laughs> oppression. And but there we go. Coming out of the tree. But this is around the same time that she leaves her husband. Oh. So they, that's kind of where people are like really pulling in that idea. It's like, oh, well, was she Daphne? And her husband, Apollo? I mean, if mm. she's a lesbian, I could see it. Yeah, for sure. Like, she's being accepted as to who she is. Mm-hmm. She was. Plus- her photographs are like these hyper feminine very much curvatures on display like there's no doubting that these are women yeah um, for and sure like they're just freaking gorgeous like, which which brings us to the uh the wind no the breeze which is the mm-hmm. last one that i sent you i love this image like it doesn't even look like a picture like a photograph like it looks like it's just a charcoal drawing but it is in fact a photograph it's just so beautiful the woman just with her just curves and elegant hands and whatever the heck that is like if it's a shawl if it's some type of fabric I don't Mm -hmm. know what it is but I love it yeah because it's like accentuating her hips mm-hmm. it draws you into her figure yep. again there's no denying that this is a woman even though it's just like a black silhouette like mm-hmm. you know that who this is like what this is and just i love it i love the haircut too yeah it, like, like that brings, bob <laughs> i know it like brings notice to like the the slender neck, neck oh. her delicate shoulders the hands and she just looks so carefree it reminds me of like those dramatic music videos women are like yeah. free and they do that real slow walk and they're like yep. blowing in the wind this is what it reminds me of but way, way classier i love Wait, this mm, for sure <laughs> so she was the first woman photographer to incorporate nudes and the wilderness like this mm. and they were deliberately resembling charcoal drawings because she wanted to capture the spirit of her subject. And she usually juxtaposed the beautiful slender woman figures with trees and rocks, reflecting her celebration of woman and nature as parallel sources of energy. Oh! (laughs) I have a wonderful quote to end on from her herself from 1913. Again, this is kind of discussing her 
Like we mentioned earlier, the quote about I was emancipated from my fear. Fear is the great chain which binds women and prevents their development. And fear is the one apparently big thing which has no foundation in life. Hmm. Yeah. I have a question for you. A trivia question page. I might have an answer. (laughs) Who is the richest living artist? I have four answers for you. Okay. David Hockney. Mm. Jeff Koons. Mm. Takashi Murakami. Or Damien Hurst. I want to say Jeff Koons because he had the... (laughs) Am I wrong? (laughs) Is it David Hockney? No. Dang it. <laughs> I thought it was Jeff Koons because I was yeah. like, oh, millions. But no, it's Damien Hurst, the guy that put the shark in the tank and then sold it. Oh, my God. No, yeah, I know exactly who that is. Okay. Yeah, and he also does, like, those dots, except he doesn't do the dots. He actually just hires a bunch of, like, interns, and then they do the dots, and he makes money off of it. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because apparently one of his, like, little intern worker people was like, hey, can you make me, like, one of these dots? And he was like, why would I do that when you literally do it every day? Do it yourself. And they were like, wow. (laughs) He's a real winner. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I have one more for you. Okay. Which of these art movements was the earliest? Oh, dear. (laughs) Mannerism. (laughs) Okay. I know when that one was because it's a lot to look at. Surrealism. Okay, that was later. Romanticism. Oh, I think it's in between. Uh huh. <laughs> or Renaissance. Hmm. Hmm. Renaissance. Yay! I yes. got it ding, right. Ding, ding. You got that Hooray. one right. <laughs> yeah, Renaissance. I, was like, I know when when most of these are, but like putting them in the order was getting me confused. <laughs> That's why I did it on purpose, because Renaissance was the first one, and I was like, no, this is too easy. It's too easy. Well, that one. <laughs> We're going to hold off on it. <laughs> what work created a stir at the Salon in 1863 for its depiction of nudity? All right. You got mm. three to choose from. Okay. Impression Sunrise by Claude Monet. Okay, well, that one's not naked. There's no naked people in that one. <laughs> The Bellilly Bellilly family uh-huh. by Edgar Degas. Mm, don't think that's it either. The Luncheon on the Grass by Edouard Manet. There's not nudity in that one either. Yes, there is. <laughs> is there? Oh, oh no! It was that one. It was that one. It was Luncheon on the Grass because the woman is naked. And the man are yes. clothed, and she's sitting yeah. there like, what up? Yes, yes. She's like, she's straight up chilling, naked, tits out, ass out, and they're just dressed and having a full-on conversation with her. <laughs> Got it. Yes. Nope. I definitely, yep, yeah, no, I definitely remember that one. Okay. Okay. Yes. My computer is up again. I would love to ask. I'm going to ask you three just so it's, because we didn't do a trivia last week. Okay. Okay. What artist said... Everything you can imagine is real. Freaking, I bet you it was Picasso. It was! (laughs) He was said to mean that anything exists in your head. You can think of flying cars. They exist in your mind, so they're real. 
Yeah, I remember. There's this, like a whole art movement. Like, if you can think and it's real, like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> nah. Loser. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just don't. I just don't like it. <laughs> so, again, our favorite guy here. Since we're just going to continue talking about Pablo Picasso and just crapping on him in every trivia session. Pablo Picasso learned to do what before walking? I'm going to assume talk like most small children. Mm-mm. Oh, what is it? Was it paint or draw or something? Yeah, it was like, something like God. drawing. I think that's a lie. <laughs> I, f- I feel it's, it's such a lie. I bet you 20 bucks their parents handed this child a crayon and his natural reflexes grasped it and then they put the paper near him and then he like did a like a like a shitty ass doodle and they were like oh my god he's a genius so he learned <laughs> to draw before he could walk because his first word is lapis which is spanish for pencil shut the fuck up <laughs> <laughs> he was like mother hand me a pencil please and she's oh my god he's gonna be an artist no, he was probably like pencil and she was like oh my god he knows he knows what he wants to do with his life i'm sorry but it's not one of those things like i i'm pretty sure if you handed any baby any sort of utensil with which to make a mark they're gonna make one that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that they're gonna be an artist yeah no it just happened to that he grew up to be an artist one day but like there's doctors everywhere who most likely also like drew something <laughs> like, before they could walk <laughs> yeah they weren't like you ain't special mother hand me my stethoscope please <laughs> i think my favorite piece of picasso knowledge it wasn't necessarily a trivia that i found it out in but he's my favorite piece of knowledge so i'm just gonna count this as my third trivia because it's a trivia for the listeners Picasso used to walk around with an unloaded revolver. And then when people would ask him what his art meant, he would pull it out, point it at them, and pull the trigger. <laughs> like, I love that idea so much. It you just... could not do that today. No. You would die. No, somebody else would be packed and pull it out and shoot you. But, like, the idea that this man was doing that just really cracks me up. Just gun safety out the window. Just. I just, I just can't stand it. He wrong. He must have shot me. He must have aimed his gun at me in a past life. That's why we can't stand them. I have Madame de Pompadour. I love her name so yes, much. Yes, her real name is actually Jean, Jean- Antoinette Poisson. Mm. Poisson? Mm. And so she was the mistress of the French King Louis XV and a notable patron of literature and the arts. Okay. She is really cool. So she wasn't just his mistress. Mm -hmm. She was also a friend of his. She became a legal advisor. Oh. Yeah. And she 
actually had like a hand in like the way of the arts of the enlightenment people actually looked up to her so <laughs> it's funny he presented her at court because you know he had happy years with his marriage but then apparently he met her and he was like oh my god this woman is super freaking hot this is who i'm gonna have as my lover she's amazing <laughs> and apparently everyone who met her was like she is stunning she's super beautiful she is super intelligent she's brought up correctly a lady whatever mm -hmm. and so the king brought her in she gave her her own wing of i guess like the castle or oh my whatever. god yeah she was official and so they were super happy like she was his official mistress for like over 10 years i believe official um, mistress yes yeah it was like a title <laughs> yeah these women would go to school i'm doing like air quotes like school mm -hmm. and it's where they would learn talents on how to get a husband writing drawing you know mannerisms and that's like how you would try to try to pull in husbands this way or you know men of of status is that and for still a her thing? Hmm? is it still a thing can we still go I <laughs> She did all of that thinking, oh, she was actually married. And then she met the king at a ball and she was like, yo. <laughs> and the husband was like, get it, get it. I'm going to separate from you. Have fun. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. So she actually had a hand in like portraiture, interior design, mm. um, as well as like various other arts and literature. She had like a couple of like writings. But however, as the years went on, she wanted to dictate how the world saw her. So a lot mm -hmm. of her portraiture is how she wanted the king and his friends to view her. So she would get done up. She looked really good. I sent you those photos. The third one is... I would say typically how everyone saw her when they first met her. Notice how she has like a slender face, slender figure, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. However, as time went on, as you do, she, her sexual relations with the king started to go downhill. Apparently she suffered three miscarriages oh. and you know, the flame was no longer there. She was trying to find it, just wasn't working. And, and then this had like resulted in weight gain. And the second picture I sent you is how she most likely ended up looking like. Most people started noticing how her hair was turning gray. She was getting fat. I wouldn't say fat. She was just putting on weight, honestly. It, it happens. Mm -hmm. uh, her teeth were yellowing. And so to fight this, she started to hire an artist, Francois Brochure. And she did a commissions where he would paint her like she was before he would make her young and youthful and pretty and she had dictation over that and so everyone was able to see oh this is actually a woman of class a woman of rank mm -hmm. um the way he painted her because if you look in the first photograph i sent you mm -hmm. you'll notice that she is holding music sheets in her hand she she's dressed in fine clothing the ruffles the satin and then in the background, there's also books. And if you mm -hmm. look really closely, there's like certain titles of the books and it's science, like scientific findings and things mm. like that that she's reading. Yeah. So it's showing that she's actually really educated, accomplished, 
and it's being translated to whatever audience is viewing it. Mm -hmm. And while she had originally meant for you know, the king and his friends to see it in, in privacy, she had no problem having these presented to the public. She's had several yeah. portraits. Bouchoir, that's the one that really made it big. It was shown at the salon i want to say like in the 1780s don't quote me on that it was really big because it's like oh this is the mistress this is she wasn't just a mistress right she was also his advisor mm -hmm. uh, which was like you don't hear of that mistress turned advisor that's amazing the the money she had like she bought several properties after they didn't work out like they remained Dang. friends when their sexual relations ended and then she was like you know what i'm gonna buy all these properties i'm gonna make them look real cute they're b, &B. yes yeah like, <laughs> so the, the the queen at this time her oh yeah she, his wife yeah. <laughs> madame de pompadour was presented to the queen and i was like this is the mistress and she approved because she was real tired of that. the king's. She was tired of the, the king's fanatics. It's so funny because the queen, there's an article on it. Apparently the queen didn't like sleeping with her husband after a couple of years. Like she produced enough heirs and she was like, get out of my bed. But you can't say that, right? So right. instead she ordered these huge, thick pieces of fabric that was meant for curtains. Things to hold in heat in your, in your home. Mm -hmm. She ordered that material and made it into bed sheets. Like, like a... Oh, she like a blanket and she would do layers and layers and layers of it and so that he got... would be uncomfortable yes and he <laughs> would get so hot he would leave that so is she so was just... petty yes so she was so excited to see madame de pompadour she was like get it it's like i don't care at this point just as long as you're not sleeping in my bed <laughs> exactly she was like i've produced you heirs i've done my job go do whatever you want and then madame de pompadour came in and so she actually had a lot of wealth like the king was paying her big money to I be bet. his mistress yeah Dang. so much so she still had access to the accounts after their sexual relationship ended and he had taken on another mistress. Yeah, she she just had that money flowing. And it was really cool because she also had a hand in interior design huh. of Versailles. Um, no way. Yeah, yeah, she was really into it. And when, they, when she passed away, they say that her buildings just was just a collection of everything she had bought or commissioned. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it was these paintings and books and furniture and cloth and they oh were like God. it's just this huge collection and it was super impressive like, most I women did not have these things she was yeah. highly respected by the end of it i would say almost anyone who knows madame de pompadour is oh like yeah she was the mistress but she was like she was really into the arts like i think that's like the general perspective of her but no one no one knows that she was curvier in her later years people don't know that because she dictated the way the portraitures were done and i really love that so she was like definitely out there going you better you better photoshop these and photoshop yes. them hard yes she was like the first photoshop queen <laughs> love that yes I just, oh my god yes um and that's why I she forget. loved bouchoir because yeah. he was like sure i'll totally do that for you he's like i'll because like he met her beforehand like, he knew what she had looked like and she was like yo that's what i want to be like and he was like bet i'll do it that happened although a lot of people were like mm, we know that bouchoir doesn't exactly do a likeness like they knew <laughs> that there might be some 
some, you know, like variation. Yes, yes, a little mm. bit of variation, but they're not about to argue with it. I mean, she invested in fine art. That's the yeah. other thing. She wasn't doing like small portraiture or anything. She was doing like grand fine art, big pieces, and it was really a status symbol yeah. of what she had achieved. She was I might have been the mistress, but I'm coming out on top. <laughs> For sure. Like, I can definitely say that uh, if just looking at three portraits is probably more than most mistresses have. It's funny because she had influence over all aspects of royal policy. Court wow. patronage, domestic and international affairs. She was the unofficial minister of culture. Oh, my God. Uh, yes. She was doing hugely it. Hugely involved in policies, foreign policy. Wow. So she was, this is around the same time as Rococo? No. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. So it's actually towards the end of Rococo. That's mm -hmm. that's another thing was she loved Rococo. That's why a lot yeah. of her portraiture is done in it. Mm -hmm. um, but this is towards the end of it. She's she's liking like a dying art. And it was mm -hmm. really great because she kept some of it going. Yeah. So did her collection after her death get turned into a museum or like what happened to her collection upon her death? So I believe it was pieces were sold. Some were donated to mm -hmm. the Louvre. And then other than that, people would then take what they wanted from it or were inspired by it. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to say they were mostly sold off and or donated to museums. That's why I love these like <laughs> this sitting portraits because like they sneak so much stuff in there that mm -hmm. is a symbol to something that they're big on. Like she's sitting in this beautifully colored room. She's got these beautiful books. Obviously, she's reading them because she's got one pulled off and it's bookmarked. And then you see the globe and whatever that little paper is it looks like it could be a like an interior design thing like a catalog for furniture maybe mm -hmm. yep and it's then most likely her own designs is that like a portfolio on the ground mm -hmm. like an art portfolio yep. like her yep. sketches yeah and then there's a guitar or some sort of stringed instrument in the back and mm -hmm. wow yeah, I am a classy woman, y'all. <laughs> Believe me. And then she's like, and I'm just going to gently look to the side. But you can see how she was dictating. Like, yeah. Um, so the second sure. one is her true appearance because that wasn't Bouchoir. And then the third one I sent you. So is it's, <laughs> it's like he was like, she said, Bouchoir, look at this one. Okay. Now do the exact same thing because it's almost the exact same face. Mm -hmm. Like she's looking in the mm -hmm. same direction. The hairstyle looks vaguely familiar, minus the flowers. Mm -hmm. Oh no, she definitely was like, "Do this, but a little different." Good for you. <laughs> I know. I know. Madame de Pompadour is really great. She saw her opportunity, took it, ran with it, and then made something with it. Like she was one of the main people who was putting that money forth and investing in the arts. Yeah, that is good for her official mistress that must yep. be nice yeah yeah love that under pompadour um i'm sure there's a whole bunch i'm missing because i also believe she invested in a school for ceramics i want to say she did i want to say she started a school for ceramics and i want to say she also invested in painters and stuff she wow. had she was like y'all need to start investing in the arts and the royal court was like okay we won't say no <laughs> yeah i mean but they wouldn't Dang, go girl. She had huge influence. She was real cool. I guess get it where you can, honey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
right. but anyway i think that wraps it on up for what it does you gotta say about madame de pompadour good for her <laughs> yeah <laughs> she's just out here doing it trying to <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for listening. Please reach out to us on our socials, TikTok and Instagram, Instagram. at imposto.pod. Comments and suggestions are welcomed um, at imposto.pod at gmail.com. Send in. All right. Well, th thank I you think so much. It. Thanks so much, everyone. We'll catch you next week. Bye. Bye. Nice.